You know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stork Show. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Andy Storch Show. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am here to help you along on our journey together to starve our fears, to follow our dreams, and to fulfill our true potential. And sometimes I interview people who are experts on certain topics. Some people I like to, sometimes I like to interview people who are uh, going through some type of journey or have had an inspirational journey and can share inspiration, ideas, motivation for you to think differently about your life. And sometimes I share my own experiences and my own thoughts. And today I have a really fantastic, authentic um, interview that I loved with uh, Sean Askinosi from Askinosi Chocolate. And Sean is someone I had heard about uh, and I hadn't talked to before. And he ha- his team reached out to me about coming on the podcast, and I get—I talk about this in the interview. I, I get a lot of these requests from PR firms, etc., and I ignore most of them because I just can't keep up with them with all the stuff I have going on. Um, but I happened to look at that one, and his name jumped out, and I knew he was going to be great. And of course, he was. Uh, if you don't know who Sean is, in 2006, Sean Askinosi left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory. Yes, a chocolate factory. Twelve. 13 years ago and never looked back. Askinosi Chocolate is a small batch award-winning chocolate factory located in Springfield, Missouri, sourcing 100% of their beans directly from farmers that they profit share with on three continents. Recently, he was named by Forbes, one of the 25 best small companies in America. Askinosi Chocolate has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and numerous other national and international media outlets, including O Magazine, Sean is the co-founder of Lost and Found, a grief center serving children and families in southwest Missouri, and he talks about that in the interview. He lost his own father when he was 14 years old and grieved about that for years and is now helping uh, young children and teens who lose their parents and siblings. Uh, really meaningful work. Uh, and speaking meaningful work, uh, speaking of meaningful work, Sean's book is called Meaningful Work, The Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul co-written with his daughter, Lauren Askinosi, and it's already a number one bestseller on Amazon. He was kind enough to send me a signed copy, and I went through it, and it is just a wonderful book. Highly recommend you check it out. And uh, this interview is one that I think will be inspiring. Sean shares some of his journey. We talk about our perspectives on building a personal brand. Uh, We talk about the virtue of stability and when you should think about making a change and when maybe you shouldn't. Um, We talk about the importance of connecting with heartbreak and uh, tragedy in your life, uh, the importance of really doing inner work and when is enough or how much is enough. And uh, of course, we close by talking about uh, Sean's mission, what he's doing with his chocolate company, uh, which is a fantastic mission. And I plan on buying some chocolate uh, to uh, consume here in my house because I little known secret, I know I talk a lot about health and fitness. I love chocolate. And of course, there are studies that show small amounts of chocolate are good for you, and especially high-quality chocolate. You can't go wrong. It's definitely expensive, but you're paying for a great quality and a great mission. And today, you're in for a treat with my interview with Sean Askinosi. So without further ado, I give you that interview. Hey, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Look forward to talking to you. Yes. Yeah, so great to have you on. Uh, it was 
really cool to, to hear from you. I have heard about you and heard about your mission from uh, a friend and mentor of mine and heard your name a couple different places. So when you or your team reached out about being on the podcast, uh, I was just excited about it, especially because I ignore or turn most of those requests down uh, because they've gotten to be uh, quite a few lately. But as soon as I saw your name, I was like, oh, I know that guy. He's on an amazing mission and I've definitely got to get him on here. Oh, that, that is really nice to hear. It's taken me a long, long time before anybody. That's really nice. I don't, you know, when I was a lawyer, maybe we'll talk about that. Yeah. I was at the peak of my career as a trial lawyer when I left. I was 45. Yeah. And I had a very niche practice, criminal defense, specializing in high profile um, felony cases, murder cases. And, you know, people around here would return my call um, mm -hmm. because either they thought they were in trouble or they thought, you know, <laughs> or they and might I, be in trouble one day and they want to be, exactly, in your you know, or they thought I was going to send out a subpoena and call right. them as a witness or something. And, yeah. and part of it was fear. And part of it was just this. Um, I had a, in many ways kind of a false sense of power and, but you know, all kidding aside, people called me back. Yeah. And when I went from that yeah. to making chocolate, yeah. Nobody called me back. Right. Nobody. I've been doing this for 12 years. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say what you just said, like, oh, I saw your name and said, I've got to have, that. I mean, it's been a long time. Um, and, and candidly, I think that this idea of this, this kind of made up sense of power that I gave myself, it was, it was um, I wouldn't say it was hard to let go of, mm. but it was fairly stark. You know, because there I was 12 years ago, nobody was doing bean to bar chocolate, really. There were two or three of us in the country. And I'm used to just getting answers. I'm used to people calling me back. And now I'm a nobody, you know. And uh, I actually, you know, it's not that I would encourage people to become a nobody <laughs> in their world, but it is a pretty sobering experience. It's humbling, right? Yeah. It is very humbling. Humbling, indeed. Well, this is why, you know, it's interesting. And, and to go back to my comment, this is not necessarily to pump myself up. This is almost like a look behind the curtain for people that are not hosting a podcast. I think that other people, entrepreneurs, marketers, PR companies, they've come around this idea that like podcasting is a great place to get for people to spread their message, get their brand. So I am getting, you know, tons of these messages and I end up ignoring most of them. And like I said, your name popped up. You've obviously built a personal brand and I am really big on building a personal brand because uh, maybe because I don't want to ever go through that humbling experience of people yeah. not knowing who I am, but because I, I subscribe to the, the belief that it's, it's almost like the last brand or business you ever need to build because you can take it with you wherever you go. You'll never leave it behind no matter what business you're in. Um, and I'm wondering what's, we'll get into your story and your book yeah. and everything, but what's your perspective on building a personal brand? Cause you obviously been doing a little bit of that, getting out there and doing interviews and things like that, writing the book. Well, I think that is a great question. I, and I think we could literally spend the whole time talking about this because um, I, I think in some ways, and, and I, I use this myself, but I think in some ways we should come up with a new phrase um, be, besides personal brand mm. um, because I think it connotes a sort of, even though it may not be, but it connotes more manufacture than may be necessary. Or yeah. of course it requires a lot of thought. 
Sure. But the, what I what I'm concerned about is that that the um, the nature of building personal brand can, if we're not careful, um, detach us from our humanness. It can, mm. it can, it can move us away if we're not careful from our true self, as Thomas Merton would say. And, um, and we become concerned about the perception of mm-hmm. ourselves as opposed to who we really are. Sure. Well, and, I think that's a so, that's yeah. a risk with anything with social media, and I've heard you talk about you know taking time off from that, and the, there's the, the good and bad there. Uh, I would push back on that to say that, and I know before we talked, we talked about different studies. There's there's ways mm-hmm. to support either side of something, and I think yes, that is definitely going on. There are a lot of people out there promoting something that is not them. At the same time, I'm really big on creating and promoting an authentic personal brand. Like what you see is what you get, and I think that is what people really want and what is going to win in the end is that that authentic people want to know that you really are who you say you are and that you're authentic and vulnerable and open and that you know and i do a lot of work in the corporate space i talk to people about leadership development and that i think that's such an important part of leadership these days too is being so authentic and open what do you think about that i well i agree with you and i i think you're right and i mean just take a look at your website as a perfect example it's in first person. Uh, you're very clear about what your priorities are, um, and you don't sugarcoat it. The picture with you and your family isn't some, you know, made for Instagram, you know, million likes. I've got a crying baby in my <laughs> right. You know, and you're at you have a little blow up pool in your backyard, and yeah. I mean that's real life, man. And that yeah. so so as I'm sure as you're working with your corporate clients and entrepreneurs you're encouraging them by giving them a, a role model yourself, you know, to say, I'm helping you and look at me. I'm, I'm doing it this way. This is authentic. This is the real thing. And I think that as long as we incorporate an element, intentional element of wabi-sabi to our mm. own personal brand, <clears throat> then I think we can stay true. Uh, like you do, you know? And I, I so I, I think so. I think, especially for hard charging entrepreneurs, we, we need to um, just incorporate these things that we're talking about as almost a practice or a discipline mm. um, because otherwise it can just kind of get away from us. Yeah. And I think it'll bite us in the end. Well, I appreciate your, uh, your kind words and uh, I'm sure that you are such a generous person. I also want to point out that after we connected and I booked you on the show, you sent me a, a signed copy of your book as well as some chocolate your factory. Not too many people are doing that. And so I want to commend you for being such a kind and generous person and, and uh, warn myself that I could take advantage of that generosity by letting <laughs> us talk about me when we're really here to talk about you. Uh, so I, you know, I read some of your book. The intro is so compelling because you have such an interesting story. And I'd love to take our listeners there and, and share some of your journey and, and some of your mission. Thank you for saying that. The, um, I was so uh, wrapped up in winning cases and that's what I did. And I spent 20 years in the courtroom before starting this chocolate factory. But the problem for me was I knew that after a particular murder trial, not because of the facts of the case, but just I was tired uh, physically and emotionally. And I knew that, that something was up, you know, I could feel it in my body uh, physically. And, um, 
I, I, I knew I had to do something else. I just didn't know what. And so I started exploring other um, specialties in, in, in law and other things. Could I do something else that would sort of take this tightness out of the center of my chest? Um, I went on a buying spree, started buying stuff. That didn't help. Um, and so ultimately, I sort of, um, not through a book or a friend or anything, but just my own desperation, realized that I had to address some things in my life that had happened 25 years before, and this is not uncommon uh, for us, uh, depending on whether it's 25 years or five years, or, but we, we often need to look back, and for me anyway, it was, um, where did my heart break? And my heart broke when my dad died of lung cancer when I was 14. And it was a very, very tough thing. And I helped take care of him. And he was a hero to me, uh, a physically fit former Marine. And to see him deteriorate in front of my eyes, and it was just, it wasn't good at all. And the, the thing was really handled poorly for me as a young teenager and uh, was with him when he died. And so, um, I needed to do something with that grief in my life because it was still there. It's still, it's still here now. Um, but, but I know what it is, and I've learned over the years to develop a fluency in the language of heartbreak. And as many of your listeners have, I'm sure, uh, whether we wanted to or not. And so what I did is I started... Um, volunteering in the palliative care department of a local hospital. And I would meet with, just go visit patients and talk to them and um, read to them sometimes. And at the conclusion of my little visit, I'd ask them if they wanted me to pray for them. And uh, I would just ask them, and this was the really important thing. I'd say, what would you like me to pray for? I listened and literally repeated their own words back to them. And something happened during those four-ish years that I did that on Fridays. And what happened was um, I experienced the truth of the Khalil Gibran statement, which is, our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And I lived that out. I lived the unmasking of the greatest sorrow in my life by visiting with these patients who were dying. And there were times when I'd leave the hospital and walk to my car and think that I was walking three or four feet above the ground. My feet weren't on the ground, it seemed. And so that was, I didn't know what was happening, but it was joy. And so it was joy that was born of this place of heartbreak. And that, oddly enough, that experience, that service created a kind of space in me where I could consider my new path because I was desperate to do something else, buying a business, starting a business, something. So it was during those years that, that um, uh, the idea to make chocolate from scratch came to me and then I acted on it. Within a few months I was in the Amazon in the wow. spot where I'll be in the, in the spot where I'll be in just 10 days wow. from now. Can I mm -hmm. come with you? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go down there. Yeah. Um, why? So, uh, there are many things I want to, I want to go into there because uh, I can see how you might have some, some breakthroughs from that. 
but why chocolate? That doesn't necessarily connect to chocolate. There's a lot of things you could be doing, you know, maybe, you, so you don't want to be a corporate lawyer anymore. I can see a lot of people getting burned out from that. It's long hours. It's hard work. There's tons of pressure and stress. And I've heard you tell the story and read your book about it. You had pains in your chest from it. A lot of people might say, well, let me, I've made some good money. Let me just relax on the beach or let me become a lobbyist or a consultant or something like that. Uh, or maybe coach other lawyers who want to grow their practices um, or something, some kind of related professional services, uh, not making chocolate and doing it the way you did. So what led to that? The, uh, I didn't have any hobbies. Um, and There's I no see, time for hobbies when you're a corporate lawyer, right? Yeah, I mean, you have a bike hanging there, and so you have yeah. a hobby, and that's great exercise. And But I didn't have, yeah, I had no hobbies. Uh, you know, I read about blood spatter evidence or, you know, new DNA um, testing and stuff like that. But so I started uh, cooking on my big green egg. I bought a big green egg. And before that I could barely make a pop tart. And um, so I, I found that I really enjoyed that. And that led um, the big green egg led to uh, making cupcakes and baking. And then from there to chocolate desserts, not, I had no idea where chocolate came from. I, th- I thought it was like a substance that was just melted. Out a tree or or, yeah. I didn't even know that. No, I didn't even know it was grown on a tree. Seriously. I was baking with it. Yeah. And this was before the whole bean to bar thing and craft chocolate and nobody, I mean, and so I just thought, well, I thought maybe my, my future was somewhere in food. I just wasn't sure where I didn't know Hmm. what it would be. And, you know, in the early days, people would ask why chocolate. And I had this really elaborate answer, but now I have the confidence to say, I don't really know Hmm. why. Um, and I think, look, I did not hear an audible voice or see skywriting in the clouds. You know, it wasn't like that at all. You will make chocolate. (laughs) I wish. And, you know, well, I told my wife originally, and we've been married, uh, this June will be 33 years, but I told her, I told her, you know, I want to quit my law practice and start this chocolate factory. And. I said, I really think it's an answer to prayer. And she said, are you sure that's not the voice of Satan? (laughs) And and she was fairly serious, you know? Um, And uh, so, no, it wasn't, it wasn't quite like that. But the, the, the thing I would return to in answer to your question is that the real, the, 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 the truth of the, the answer is that it's a mystery. And I think that that is really hard, especially I think sometimes for entrepreneurs and really motivated people to be willing to let it be a mystery and mm-hmm. to not really know why. Yeah. And because the, the, the deal was, is that I created this space in my mind or my heart to just think about things that I would have never thought about because I was you know, uncovering this, this sorrow in my own heart. And that, that I think is the key. Yeah. And, and it also that you didn't wait for things to be perfect. You took a chance and you tried it. And it sounds like it's been 12 years. So I'd imagine I can assume that things are working. I see you as a very authentic person. You'd tell me if it wasn't. Um, but even if it didn't quite work out, it would probably lead to something else. Right. And that's often what happens in entrepreneurship is that it starts with one thing and then it turns into another thing. Like for me, for instance, I got into 
consulting and then went off on my own to become a talent development consultant. Then I started a podcast and now I'm hosting a conference later this year that I never would have dreamed that that was going to happen. But it's, you know, just keep trying stuff and one thing leads to another. But if you don't take that first step and try something then it, it never happens. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to the, it goes back to the thing that we talked about in the beginning. And we were, when we were talking about personal brand, look, on your web page, use the first four words or five words, you say, it says, Hey, I'm Andy Storch. Andy Storch is a husband, father, consultant, coach. So you have, you have identified, you, you are not trying to sort of create this false sense of identity. You know who you are and you put that in the first sentence on the about page on your website. And what I'm suggesting is that there are, there are those of us who spend a lifetime saying, I'm a winning trial lawyer. Right. I, and that's your identity. I, yeah. I'm going to, you know, 10 X your sales. I'm the guy that can, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not our identity. Right. Even me now, my identity, people know me as a chocolate maker. That's not who I really am. Right. Who I really am is what you, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a friend. I'm, I'm going to, as Joseph Campbell said, I want to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. That's who I am. That's who, that's my aspiration. I want to be there with you when you need me. Mm. That's the truth of who I am and who I want to be. Not, you know, the greatest chocolate maker in the world. Just like what you said, you didn't say in the first sentence, I'm the greatest coach in the world. I'm the greatest <laughs> That the would world. be a lie. Well, but you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and so that's, that's why I think it's important um, to, to, as you said, that if it had, if it had failed, right. If I could have learned from that experience some element of who I am as a person, yeah. then yes, it absolutely would have been okay. And it would have, it would have led to something else. And just like this now, I don't, you're right. We're profitable. We've been doing this for 12 years. Things are good. But I mean, we operate this, this, this thing out of cash flow. Yeah. I only have 16 full-time employees and I am, and I'm, this isn't really the Buddhist in me, but I'm prepared for it to fall in a hole tomorrow. Mm. I mean, we do have sinkholes here in Missouri. I don't think that'll happen. I mean, <laughs> we have those here in Central Florida. Yeah. If you never know, you're going to pull up to your business. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't, the point is it wouldn't destroy you, right? It's not your identity. It's certainly what you're building and what you're marketing now. But if it, if it went under, you would still be here. You would still have your life and your family and your faith and your, and yeah. your personal brand. And you would be able to build something else and take all the lessons that you took and the relationships you have and the network and go mm -hmm. build the next thing. And that's why I'm such a big fan of trying stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I also feel like if something like that happened that, you know, all my friends and people would help me and uh, I'd be the recipient of that um, help and, brother and sisterhood if something like that happened. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, I'm again, like such a fan of people trying stuff. I encourage people all the time. I have a good friend here in Orlando, uh, Alex, who is a yoga teacher and a friend of my workout together. He opened a yoga studio a few months back, made it about six months, went out of business. And I tell him any chance I get, I'm really proud of you that you, tr you gave it a shot. And I know yeah. that some of the lessons from that will help you with the next thing that you start. 
while you're trying to figure that out. I mean, he quit his job, he took a chance and he started it and it didn't work, but at least he took a shot. And, you know, going back to your time visiting people in the hospital, and if you've read the, you know, Top Regrets of the Dying, it's often that I didn't try, take a chance and try the things that I wish I could, I could try to do, right? Yeah, I have heard of that, but I did, yeah, I mean, I've talked to many, many people who were in a, in the, in a variety of stages of dying, and yeah, there, there are a lot of regrets, um, and, you know, I saw that every time I visited. So on this topic, uh, your, your book is all about uh, finding meaningful work, the quest to do great business, find your calling, feed your soul. Um, and I am on a mission as well to help people um, or really to fulfill my true potential, help other people do the same thing. Uh, so we're talking about your story. How do other people find this meaningful work, especially if they're in a position where they're in their 30s or 40s? And they're really not fulfilled with what they're doing. And they're thinking, God, I wish I could do something else. It's cool that, you know, you were able to go off and start this chocolate company. How do I figure out how to do something like that? I think one of the, I think one of the first things that um, someone can do is um, decide first if they really are in the wrong place or if they need to recalibrate their their attitude and view toward where they are. I receive emails from people all over the country who say, Hey, you know, thanks, uh, read your book. And I know now I need to stay right where I am. And I'm heartened by that because one of the things I didn't talk about in the book and wish that I would have, and I've written a little blog post about it. And that's um, this kind of forgotten virtue of stability. We talk about it in friendships and marriages and, um, We've, we've, because we're so mobile and have so many opportunities in front of us, um, we don't hear a lot of talk about just stick with it, you know, and, and, and have that and develop that virtue of stability. So that's the first thing I think is to sort of really take some time to dig deep and determine what is the source of my discomfort where I am right now. And if we find ourselves in the situation where it, it's not going to work, I need to be in another place on another path. I need to start it or join it. Um, well, I encourage people to, um, as I do in the book, to stop Googling it. And it's just not there. I mean, right. you know, we were talking earlier about I was on the debate team in high school. And I mean, all I did was research stuff. And that's all I did as a lawyer was literally every day you know, mm -hmm. trying to find witnesses and trying to develop cross-examination outlines and direct examination outlines and just, you know, research, research, research. And I sort of prided myself on being able to walk into the courtroom for a jury trial and there would literally be, um, I, I would have such a level of preparation that there was no surprise, none in, you know, a multi-week trial. Well, that's a lot of, I'm not sure, I'm sure it's taken years off of my life, but then I used that same, what I thought was a skill set in trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I'm sure you see this in your coaching practice all the time. Definitely. And we see um, people who are ready to leave and there are these shiny objects in our periphery that look attractive. And we jump to that um, sort of shiny object without really doing the deep work. Um, and trying to determine whether this is a, you know, just a, 
passing fancy or if it's something that we can really be um, attracted to and spend our life doing, or at least, you know, the next long while and be committed to it. And so I ask people to, you know, step away from the Google search box and even books for that matter, and to, to do some deep work. And for me, because this is my lane, I'm talking now to people in your audience who maybe resonate with the story I told a few minutes ago about heartbreak. And so I really believe that there are a lot of mysterious answers in the depths of our broken hearts. And for those people who say, well, I've never really had a, a tragedy or a loss or a broken heart, um, then I say, well, let's, we need to figure out how to get your heart broken <laughs> because we, we need to find out why, why you're leading a life with no heartbreak. Um, and because that's a problem in and of itself. But there are, there are obviously there are people who have, depending on where they are in life, have really suffered some serious broken can hearts. I, can I just tell you something? Sure. I am, you know, so big into personal development and learning and, and listening to different people's stories and reading books and listening to stories like yours. And I, it's often, I come across such inspiring stories from people that have overcome tragedy. And sometimes I feel like I haven't really experienced that much tragedy in my life. Like, is that actually a disadvantage for me that I haven't faced any major, How old are you? you know, 39. How old are you? I mean, you're, you're approaching the point in your life where if you haven't had some pretty good heartbreak, then you need to go looking for it. I think because you're a deep person. I can tell, I mean, I've been all over your website. I've listened, listened to your podcast. Mm. I, I saw, I read between the lines, you know, you, you, you had this, you had a level of dissatisfaction in what you were doing. You mm. go get an MBA at one of the best business schools in the country. Um, and then you knew you had to do, you had to take a different path. You know, you didn't just, you, you, you had to do it. And so there's something there. I mean, we don't have the time now, but yeah. I mean, we could talk about it. There's, there's, there's a, there was a seed of discomfort or dissatisfaction or yearning or longing planted in you somewhere, somehow. I don't know. Yeah. Right. And so there, there's a root, there's a source of that. Sure. And it probably has to do with, you know, a, a, some degree of, of disappointment and broken heart and sadness and sorrow. And we My all parents, have that. You can say it. It's fine. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, but, but what I'm saying is, is that I think that well, I don't care if you are an entrepreneur or if you're um, an employee in a large organization that we need to go looking for places where our hearts might be broken. Hmm. And it's, and I think it's best if we can look in those places where our own hearts were broken and where that tiny sliver or maybe a big chunk of sorrow was born. Why? Because then there's, there's an alignment. There's just this alignment between what we're doing now to, um, to participate in that sorrow joyfully with someone else where we once were. And that, that is where the, the mystery really deepens and speaks to us and gives, it can give our life a depth of meaning that we never thought possible. And I'm not saying that this is like some formula that's going to give people 
the notion of where they need to go to work next or what business they need to start. But it's a paradox. I will say that it is a paradox. And so back to the question about you, you know, at 39, is that what you said? 39? Yeah. 39. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, there, there are, you're busy, you have small children, you, you're supporting your family and you're working and you're developing your personal brand. But I think it's important that along the way, we find spots in our life, either with people in our own family, uh, extended family, neighbors, people in our business, where we, um, now this is my faith talking. I have no idea what your faith is. I'm not, I'm, and I'm not even for your listeners. I'm just saying for my faith. Mm-hmm. Father Greg Boyle in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, said, if you want to find where God is, go to the low places mm. because that's where he's going to be. And so I say to people who doesn't matter your faith, go to the low places because in the low places, um, you'll, I don't mean the low places of yourself or I'm not talking about depression. I'm talking about where there is need, where there's poverty, where there's despair um, and sorrow, loneliness. If we can brush up against those places we will experience the divine, I think. And I think that's, that's when we know that we're alive, we know it. Yeah. And that, I, think, I think that's important to live a, a meaningful life. It's kind of like the maybe more secular saying, like where the rubber meets the road and like really, you know, where's the hard work being done and how yeah. do people act when times are tough versus when times are good. And I, if I can investigate more, what I think you're saying is that First of all, many people, most people have experienced some form of tragedy and many people have suppressed that, like maybe I have as well, or your disappointment or heartbreak, like you said, yeah. right? Because life is full of expectations. Expectations create disappointments, right? And we've all had many disappointments in our life, whether you call it heartbreak or a disappointment, right. whatever it is. Right. And I think what you're suggesting is do that inner work to really start to investigate those things. Like where are those feelings coming from? What do you really care about? What are, you know, who are the people that impacted you? What are the events that impacted you in your life? And yes. stop Googling and expecting a webpage to say, oh, here's what you should do next because no yes. one is going to know but you. No. Uh, it's a great idea to find a great coach and ask you the yes. right questions to help yes. you through that process. But you have to do the inner work and really get to know yourself and dig deep into those and have those hard conversations even with yourself and get uncomfortable um, to investigate some of those things. And I've done a little bit of that, maybe not enough. And I I like your suggestion there because I think most people don't do that and they don't really think even beyond the surface of why am I unhappy with something? For instance, you, you talked about, you know, sometimes people think they need a big change and they might not necessarily need a big change. And I had a conversation with a friend a few, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Houston, the guy who loved his job, but he thought maybe he needed a change because he hated his commute and he didn't really like his, his boss. And I said, well, can you just make a mindset shift that this commute is awesome because you get to listen to podcasts and learn or something? Yeah. Like, yeah, I never really thought about it that way. It is. And then all of a sudden he's like, maybe yeah. I can keep this job. And it's like such a, it's like a little, right. he loved his job and his company. Yeah. He didn't like the commute. And he didn't like his manager. And it's like, well, if it's just these things yeah, and otherwise you're fulfilled, maybe make a, a mindset shift versus like changing your entire life. Now, many people yeah. like you were and like I was had a deeper feeling that I need to make a big change. And that's what you're saying. You really need to do this inner work yeah. and get in touch with yourself. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. And I think it's important that I, I like what you said about coaches and mentors, because um, I think that a coach or mentor that can kind of help lead us to that place and help guide us through that interior work um, are who we need to seek out, not someone who we think is going to give us the answer. Um, because we, what we're trying to do often, I see this happening in people who I'm not a coach, but, but people who talk to me or want to discuss this is they want me to decide for them. Mm. You know, they want me to say, Oh, well, have you thought about being a yoga teacher? Cause I think, you know, you need to, you know, you need to be a yoga teacher. <laughs> based on switch. Told me. Yeah. And I'm just not, but, but I think it's best if, if this work can be born from their own, you know, psyche and not something that, that I've just given to them. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's going to, I think that's more sustainable. Um, and I think it will be more fulfilling for the person if it's something that they've, if, even though it might be a little bit more circuitous path to get there, I think this is, this is the kind of coaching I think that we need, um, you know, to help people along because there are a lot of, well, Gallup says that two thirds of the American workforce is disengaged and 55% of executives in this country are not engaged at work and it's worse worldwide. Mm-hmm. And you think, wait, how could really that's, and it's, this is not new information either. So there, I mean, I can imagine that your practice is burgeoning, you know, and as you say on your website, it's, you don't take every person that comes to you because if you did, there would be, you know, you don't have, there's only, 24 hours in a day. So, because think about that. I mean, that's millions of people out there who are working in their jobs who are not liking what they're doing. And here's the the bad news. It finds that mindset finds its way into the quality of products and services that are offered in this country. It's, it's destroying our economy Mm. because another Khalil Gibran quote that I love is, that when you bake a bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. Well, wow, that doesn't apply to just bread. It's chocolate, it's coaching, it's insurance sales. It it doesn't matter. And think about all these people who are indifferent about what they're doing during the day and how that winds up in the quality of all of these things that um, and certain services that are provided around this country. And so we have to do something about this. We've got to do something about it. I think. Yeah, I agree. I'm on a mission to, to help with that. And I can see you are as well. Now there are a lot of people who might say, Hey, I'm not that happy with my job. I don't love it, but I make good money and I'm trying to get, I'm on pace for this promotion or we want to buy this vacation house or, you know, whatever it is that we, we want to create this better life for our children um, chapter three of your book is called How Much is Enough? Uh, so tell me a little bit more about that. That, um, that really kind of, well, first, it was, it, you know, I'll, I'm going to go ahead right out there and say that it's easy for me to admit. I mean, I spent 20 years making a ton of money and, oh, well, it's easy for me to now say, well, how much is enough? Yes, but think about this for a minute. For the last 12 years, I have made what I used to pay in taxes. Okay. So, so I don't make what I used to make and we don't live on that. And I put my daughter through college on that. And um, so 
I think this question is really, really important. How much is enough? How much is enough money? How much is enough money at this stage of my life and the next stage? And how much will I need? Um, how much does my company need? What kind of profits um, are enough profits for my company in order for me to be sustained and for me to pay everyone here fairly and justly? And that I think it extends even further. You know, how many, how many downloads are sufficient for your podcast for you? How many do you need? How many do you, how many do right. you It's easy need? to always look at it yes. and say, oh, it's yeah. this. Uh, I wish it were more. Right. Instead of saying and flipping it and saying, wow, that many people downloaded my podcast. I'm so grateful that. that right. That. Well, and I think when we begin to answer these questions, understanding, of course, that many of them are moving targets, but when we can kind of put our finger on this and answer some of these questions, that it frees us up. It's sort of, it's very liberating. Um, and we can really focus our attention on other things um, because we've, we've decided, you know, and where this comes from for me is this idea of kind of this efficiency economy is um, from the rule of Benedict. And the rule of Benedict is a 1,500-year-old management document that's been governing the management of Benedictine monasteries around the world probably the longest continually used management document in existence. And so in Europe, when the Trappist monasteries are, are brewing beer, how much beer do they brew? Enough. Mm. They brew enough. Yeah. And that's it. And so I, that really resonates with me. And I think it almost kind of takes that sort of Benedictine mindset or otherworldly mindset or the mindset of community to say, wait, we are going to step out of this um, kind of racket, if you will, that tells us that we're only healthy and we're only doing good based on the consumption of our product or our, in our economy. So the entire world economy is the, the health of it is based on consumption. And we have to, I think in order for capitalism to survive, in a way that's meaningful and just, um, we, we have to stop that. And one of the ways to do it is just little old me, you know, in my 16 person company is to try to put our finger on the answers to some of these questions of how much is enough and we'll do our part. And maybe hopefully other people are doing their part to answer those questions and we can step outside of that rat race. What do you think is the biggest thing that holds people back from, taking some action, taking a risk uh, to trying to, or, or just to having that mindset and living a more fulfilling life? Oh, I think it's the protection of our ego, you know, that tells us that we need to win and we need to be better. And um, I, I think we're all human and um, some of us, including me, you know, I'm very competitive and, and uh, I think it's, it's, it, I think it gets in the way. And I think the more we can do to practice in our businesses, to practice connection to humanity, the more we can do to have human to human, shoulder to shoulder connection, then the more likely we will be to um, approach these questions that you just mentioned with an open heart. And if we can do that, then I think, we have a better likelihood of 
of pushing the ego aside, or as Thomas Merton would say, the false self aside, and let our true self shine a little brighter. And I think as we do that, we can we can be willing to be courageous and take this risk and and you know answer these questions in this way of how much is enough. And I I think that's the best way. I, I'm very optimistic about this. I'm optimistic about it um, from people my age and people your age and my daughter's age. She's 29. And uh, I really see the, I see this wheel turning in, in favor of um, a really um, beautiful response to this problem around the world. And I think that we're going to find um, a real evolution of capitalism that will be fairer, more just, more equal distribution of wealth. Um, maybe I'm uh, overly optimistic, but I, that, that's how I feel about it. I'm an optimist as well. I like that. And, you know, you mentioned what often holds people back is the protection of their ego. Uh, at the end of the day, that's fear, right? It's fear that yeah. I'm going to fail, fear that I'm going to be judged, fear that I'm not going to be enough, fear that I'm not going to be loved. Um, yep. And I think what holds people back from anything is always some kind of fear. And you mentioned courage, having the courage to take the step and do the inner work and figure out what you really want to do and then take a risk, take a chance. It doesn't have to be a huge change. You don't have to leave your job. Um, I do want to leave with a little bit of actionable advice. So we started down this road of, hey, I'm not really very satisfied with my career or what I'm doing in my life. I want to make some changes. Um, we talked about getting in touch with heartbreak and doing some of that inner work. What would be the next step? What, what should people be doing to really think about, figure out what is that, that next thing for me? I think, the, I think the, the action step at that point is to say, who do I know that I can serve? Someone needs my broken heart. Don't wait. Roll up your sleeves. Find them. Don't wait till you have enough employees, till you have enough capital, till you have enough um, you know, NOI. Just, just do it. Don't wait to serve somebody who needs you. And I believe that a lot of amazing things, mysterious and paradoxical things can arise from that service of someone who needs us. So that's what I say. Don't wait. Roll up, roll up our sleeves as business people and entrepreneurs and start doing it. I love that. And I think, you know, I'm not a religious person as you are, but I do think and I give this advice often, maybe it's not founded, but that when we often we go through some type of tragedy, it's almost so that we can help others go through the same thing, right? We now have that experience that allows us to connect and help others because without that experience, um, we wouldn't be able to, right? I mean, I have had the experience of growing up with great parents. My parents got divorced when I was young and I can certainly talk to people about that, but I didn't lose my father like you did. So if I had a friend that lost a father, I could console them, but I wouldn't know exactly what to say. You would be able to help them through that process because you also lost your father when you were young. Yes. And 20 years ago, I co-founded a grief center for children and families called Lost and Found. I'm still very involved in it. We've served thousands of children and families over the last 20 years in Southwest Missouri. I co-facilitate a teen group twice a month. So there are, you know, right now 17 young people in our group whose parents or siblings have died. And 
when I do that, it's the best night of my week. Hmm. Because as you said, I, I, I know what that feels like. And if I can just play some tiny role in, you know, connecting with them and giving them some degree of hope, then that's, that's what I'm supposed to do as you would do because you know what it feels like when your parents are divorced. Mm -hmm. You you could more than console someone in that you you've been there. Mm -hmm. You know what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you're right. I think that's, I think that is, I think that is very real. It doesn't have to be religious at all. It's so that we can be on the trail and turn around and see someone and stop and offer a hand. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's, I believe that's why we're here. Yeah. All of us. So that somebody up ahead of me can turn around as happen, And this happens to me sometimes every day where somebody is up ahead of me on the trail and they turn around and help me with something. And I'm sure that happens to you too. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, we're, yeah. we're always, uh, ahead of some people, next to some people, and behind some people. There are plenty of people ahead of us, no matter where you are. I see it when I'm out riding my bike, which mentioned earlier. There are people I'm passing on the trail. There are people passing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're much older than me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, same thing with life, with business, whatever it is. And that's why I like to surround myself with ambitious people who are doing it. It's why I have these podcasts to interview people like you who've done amazing things so I can learn from you and why I, you know, try to help others. And I want other, everybody to remember that, that there are always people that you can get help from. There are always people that you can help. Um, How can we help you? Where are you going with all of this? And uh, you know, what's the vision and what do you want people to do as a result of this podcast? Well, uh, thanks for asking. I mean, the first thing is I hope people buy our chocolate. I mean, we're, we're a, we're a small company and I hope people buy it. And I want, I hope that people buy it because they love the way it tastes. Mm. We haven't even talked about that. I know we're going to go and I'm going to say bye here in a few seconds, but I mean, that's what I want. And then if the story resonates with them about how we help farmers around the world and how we're working in communities and how I take local high school kids to Tanzania every other year. And if they like the story, great. But I hope and pray that people buy the chocolate because they think it tastes good and that's a quality, it's a high quality product. So how people can help is go to askanosi.com, read more about us, learn about us um, and buy our chocolate and, you know, just be part of supporting this, this path that we're all on. And that's the way people can help. And then, uh, the other way, of course, is to read the book and see if something resonates and go do it, you know, start serving someone and see how that can play a role in your life and your future of your business and, and just your family. We, we started this podcast, this interview by talking about building a personal brand. And I want to end with that. Um, I think there, you know, in a world where we can access tons of different products uh, on Amazon and anywhere else and get anything that we want. Uh, it's often the story of a brand that we really connect with and that, that, you know, makes us want to buy from them again. Obviously you the chocolate, you want it to taste really good, but you've got a fantastic story. Let's take the last minute or two. Tell us like, why, why is your chocolate different? Tell me more about the, the, you know, bean to bar and the mission and what you do with the kids and everything. Well, in 10 days, I'm going to take my 42nd origin trip since I started this business and it's to the Amazon. And um, 
I, when I go to Tanzania, it takes me almost 60 hours to get there. And every other summer, we take local high school students who compete to be part of this international business immersion program. And uh, it's a, I've been doing that since 2009. This is transformative for these kids. They're super bright, and uh, many of them are very poor. And so we raise money to uh, bring them. We're feeding 1,000 kids a day right now in the Philippines. We've um, served over and provided over a million meals since we started these school lunch programs in Tanzania and the Philippines, all sustainable, no donations. We have a chocolate university program that we started, so we engage local kids in our business. So we have elementary school kids, middle school, a middle school summer school program, and a high school program. and um, we want them to know that business can be a force for good in the world and that there is a world beyond Springfield, Missouri. And so we're very active in the, what we call direct trade. So I've literally, I go and see these cocoa beans every single time before we buy beans. So I've been on a lot of trips, as I said, and we profit share with the farmers. We open our books to them. We translate our financials into their language. I mean, I'm sitting right now. I have, uh, our P&L in Spanish because I'm going down to the Amazon. When I go to Tanzania, our financials are in Swahili. And we publish what we, on our website, not in some fancy graphic or anything, but we publish every single bean buy that we've ever made in 12 years, who we paid, how much we paid them, how it compared to the world market price, the fair trade price, and then most importantly, the farm gate price. And we've paid 55% on average more than farmers would have otherwise, otherwise received all those years and we're not moving the needle. I'm only, I'm a little speck in the bucket, but I hope that we can be um, a light, a, a little light that people can see and say, Hey, I, I see that, you know, I can direct trade with people in my industry or direct to consumer, or I can share my story and, and, and connect with people who are, consuming my product or service. That's what we're doing. That is fantastic. I love the mission. Uh, I love the chocolate. You sent me some. It's delicious. I'm actually on your website right now getting ready to buy more uh, because uh, I want delicious chocolate. And I also want to be supporting a great mission versus just buying something from a big bulk warehouse store. So thank you, Sean, for coming on and uh, sharing you know, your story, your knowledge, your wisdom, your experience. I know it's been really great for me. And I know it has been for our listeners as well. Uh, the book is again is Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. And we'll put links to everything uh, in the show notes, uh, askinosi.com. Uh, Sean, thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Andy. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care.